Well, let me say thank you again for joining us online at The Bridge. We are so grateful that you have taken your time to be with us. And I want to give a shout out to Marshall Peterson and Kurt Lawson, who has helped teach this series. So just online, can you give them some praise hands? Give those guys a shout out. Unbelievable communicators as we have walked through this book of James. And today I get to wrap it all up. And, um, and I'm just telling you, I don't know about you, but James has a way of just getting right in our face, doesn't he? And just making life, number one, super clear about how we should live life. But number two, he always gives us some encouraging words on how to best live life. And if you haven't been here, James, if you remember, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so at first, he really wasn't quite sure about Jesus. Um, I mean, he was his brother after all. But he absolutely became a follower of his brother, believing that Jesus was the one true living Christ, the Messiah, Savior of the world. And now James is writing to believers to encourage them how to live out their faith. And that was actually in week one where we talked about from James chapter two, the heart of what James was trying to get at was this. You can say that you believe, but if you don't do something with what you claim, it does you absolutely no good. Just to say, oh, I believe in God, but you don't do anything with what God tells you to do, then your belief is actually hollow. And it doesn't help you, it doesn't help your family, it doesn't help your relationships, it doesn't help you in your career, it just doesn't help you in life at all. So James says, listen, there are so many areas of life where we want God's blessings, we, we want to experience life. However, we want to experience life and have God's blessings to the exclusion of doing what he's asking us to do. And James goes, that's not gonna happen. Those two have to be bonded together in what you say and in how you live your life. So today we come to the topic of money. Now, before you click off or before you check out, I know as a preacher that people get very, very uneasy. Listeners get very, very nervous when the preacher talks about sex, death, or money. And we really only want him to hear him talk about one of those. But today I want you to hang in there with me. Yes, just telling you up front, James is gonna get in our face a little bit as he has with every other topic we've studied. But I think it's gonna challenge us in a good way to do something with the blessings that we have. But here's how I wanna start it off. I wanna ask you a question. Now, before I put this question uh, on the screen and before you respond in the chat window, here's how you cannot respond. You cannot respond whatever I wanna do. You can't say that, but what would you say the first thing comes to your mind, chat in the window. How would you answer this question? Here it is right here. If you were rich, what is the first thing you would do? If you were rich, what is the first thing you would do? Now, I, I, again, I know that when we talk about if you were rich, we all have different opinions about rich people. We all have different opinions about what rich people should do with their money. We all have different opinions about how the government should treat rich people. But if you, we're not talking about anybody else. We're talking about you. If you were rich, what is the first thing you would do? Now, for some of you, maybe you may be even thinking, well, what is rich? I'm gonna give you an example of rich 
of something that took place this past week. I don't know if you keep up with it or not, but one contract that was signed by Patrick Mahomes was for, and I'm using round numbers, I may get it off here just by a few, but who cares? $500 million for 10 years. Half a billion dollars for 10 years. Here's what it means. That's $50 million he will make every year for 10 years. That's $137,000 every day for 10 years. So by the time you go to bed tonight, he will have made $137,000 and some change. That's rich. What would you do if you were a rich person? Now, why do I start the whole message off that way? Aren't you glad you tuned in this morning? Here's how James starts his whole message. James chapter five, verse one. Look here, you rich people. How about that for an introduction? The dude obviously never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. This is how he starts. Look here, you rich people. Now, again, before you think that you can check out and go get more pancakes and go do whatever you want to, just hang on with me for just a minute. Hang on. If you make $45,000 or more, you are in the top 50% of American income earners. Top 50%. Did you know that the majority of the world makes less than $300 a year. And when I say the majority, I'm talking about 75%. 75% of the world makes less than $300 a year. Internationally speaking, we are filthy, stinking rich. Internationally speaking, a preacher could get up in another country to put your face and how much you make per year, and the audience would be like, you've got to be kidding. There's no way he makes that much. What is she gonna do with all that money? So James goes, look here, you rich people. When my kids were growing up, I remember specifically this conversation kind of started happening toward the latter part of elementary school, fourth grade, fifth grade, even bleeding over into middle school a little bit where they started recognizing different values of cars. They started seeing houses that were a little bit bigger than other houses. And I remember having conversations in the car on the way to school, picking up from school. And the question would be something like this. Hey, dad, are we rich? I answered the same way every time. We are loaded. We are unbelievably rich. And they'll be like, you gotta be kidding me. And I remember their face would just be like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're rich? I mean, you have no idea how rich we really are. And I would explain to them, do you understand? We have houses for our cars. It's called a garage. That's how rich we are. Like our car, and most countries don't even have a car. Most people. We have a house for our car. How crazy is that? But yeah, okay, I guess that's pretty crazy. And then I would say something like, and guess what? This is so crazy. This is how rich we are. You can go into our home and you can pick this one door and behind that door, there are snacks 
Behind that door, there are chips. Behind that door, it's cereal. It's like a magic door to where when you open it up, there's food behind it. It's called a pantry. There's food behind it. Can you believe that we have a door that you open up and there's food all behind the door? And they're just looking at me like I'm crazy. But here's what they didn't know. They didn't know the majority of people, they don't have that luxury. They're not that rich. I remember a friend of mine, Micah Davidson, when he adopted his son who was eight years old out of a very, very poor community, when they got, got him home, they were showing him around the house. They walked into the kitchen and they walked over to the refrigerator and they took a glass and they filled it up with water and they hit the button and they just gave it to him. And he just sat there and looked at it. And instead of drinking the water, he just did it again and he let go. He did it again and he let go. He could not believe that you can grab a glass and touch a button and have clean water anytime you want. We're rich and we're so rich. A lot of us, we don't have one fridge. We have two fridges and one is in the house that the car lives in. We are rich. And here's what James is not going to do. He's not going to tell you, he's not going to tell me that having money is wrong. As a matter of fact, when you read scripture over and over, that is a blessing from God. Can you just give some praise hands in the chat window for God blessing us to live in America and causing us to have blessings that we don't deserve, but he has blessed us in unbelievable ways. And when you look internationally, we are rich and it is a blessing from God himself. James would absolutely identify that as being true. So that's not where he's gonna go. Where he is gonna go is this. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong to be unwise with your money. He's gonna kind of turn the page here and talk not just to rich people. He's gonna talk to rich people who are so irresponsible with their money. And he lays it out this way as we continue reading. He says this, Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the, we would never put this in here, terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, this is so contradictory to how we think because here's how we think about rich people. Terrible troubles, anguish. Well, hold on, no, no, no. Rich people don't have troubles. Rich people don't have anguish. Rich people don't have anxiety. Rich people have security. Rich people have put so much aside and they have so many nice things. They live with happiness. They live with contentment and satisfaction. They are secure. Here's what James says. You have factored in the security of now, but you haven't factored in beyond the now. And what you believe is your security is actually going to be one day your embarrassment. And what you have put your foundation upon, that rug will be pulled out from under you. And that security will turn into your embarrassment. And he kind of fleshes this out a little bit more because here's what he says. 
Verse two, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. Now, this is so interesting. He says, not just your clothes, your fine clothes. Keep in mind, in that day, if you got a really nice set of clothes, you would keep that set of clothes your entire life. You had one set. He puts it as plural. Not only your clothes, your fine clothes. So he's basically looking at rich people though, and he's going, but you're so rich. You don't have one set of clothes. You have two, three, four, five, six. James would go, wow, you have clothes in your closet. You've never even worn. You're so rich. You have so many pairs of shoes. Ladies, he's coming for you. So many pairs of shoes for a special occasion but you've never even worn those shoes. He would say, Kenny, Valerie, Bridge, oh, you're so blessed. You're so rich. And it comes with a responsibility not to just put it away, put it away, put it away, put it away. Because in America, we put it away, put it away, put it away because of a disease that we all have. This is the disease, just in case itis. Just in case itis is the disease that we have. Just in case something all goes down. Just in case we all get sick. Just in case this is happens later on in the future. Just in case we need the security. Now, again, he's talking to people, rich people who aren't using God's wealth the way he desires them to use it, which we'll get to in a minute. He's talking to people who are so rich. They have so much, but they're so irresponsible and not honoring God with what he has given them. This is where he's going. And then he goes into the next verse and here's what he says. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. And right now he's winning over his audience. Can't you feel this? I mean, he's just really, really winning them over. (laughs) This corroded treasure you have hoarded. Then he brings in this courtroom scene terminology. This is so fascinating. Will, here it is, testify against you on the day of judgment. And we go, hang on, James. (laughs) Hang on, wait, 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 wait. What are you talking about in a courtroom? Testify against me. Day of judgment. Where are you going with this? Here's what James would say. You did well in planning for your future. You just didn't plan for all of your future. You stopped. You you, you planned for the now and for the next five years and the next 10 years. But unfortunately, You didn't plan for after your life. You stopped way too short. And it will testify against you. And he uses an interesting word, doesn't he? You have hoarded it. You ever seen that show, Hoarders? I'd never seen the show. Never watched it. Until this past week, we're flipping through Netflix or Hulu or whatever it was on. 
And I went, hey, listen, I might need to watch that. There may be something there that I can use in the message. So I clicked on an episode. Valerie was sitting on the couch. I clicked on an episode. I start watching this episode, and this is no lie. I get so uncomfortable, I can't continue watching it. We had watched about half of the episode, and I looked at Valerie, and I said, I can't watch it anymore. And she kind of snickered a little bit. She goes, why? And I went, I I, I need to go outside and just flap my arms. I need freedom. I need to, I, I could not take it anymore. The episode we watched was of this gentleman. This is his living room. The clothes and the stuff go all the way up to the ceiling behind him. This is where he sleeps at night. This is where he has a TV that you can't see in the picture. And the TV is just two or three feet in front of him. This is just one room. Every room that he would go to, he would have to move things out of the way, climb up with a gap in between the stuff and the ceiling, shimmy his way through just to get to the laundry room, just to get to the hallway. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And here's what's interesting. As I did a little research on people who hoard, it is a mental disability. That there's, there's something that happens in their mind that causes them to do such a thing. But here's what it produces for them. Depression. High anxiety. Isolation. He and his wife, so isolated from their neighbors in their community. It creates family issues. When they would interview his daughter, when they would interview different family members, it was so obvious that his hoarding had done something. It had isolated him and created so many emotional problems. My heart went out to him. My heart went out to his wife, his daughter, but I just couldn't watch it anymore. It was way too uncomfortable for me. And then when I started thinking about the people who I knew, they didn't live this way, but they definitely didn't use their wealth for other people. I realized something that's really true. And then when I really started thinking about it, it's really true in my own life because I have a tendency to be this way as well. And here's the principle. Stingy people are lonely people. That's true in my life. When I hang on to what God's given me, instead of understanding it is a gift, it is a blessing, just let it go. Treat everything with open hands. Because see, the normal way of living life is actually, James is correct. It's that we hoard. It's that we stockpile. It's that we add to. And we can never get enough. The higher the stack, the more secure we feel. But the truth is, the more we stack and put away, the stinger we are, which simply means we really get pretty lonely in life because we go into a self-preservation mode for all of our stuff and we forget what matters most, people. And that's why James goes on to the next verse and he lays it out for us. Here's what he says. Look, hear the cries of the field worker. So now he's going into people who own a business. He, he, he's talking to people who, maybe you're not the CEO, but you have people working for you. Look, the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay, the cries of those and the harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. What a description. Now we have a courtroom scene 
but the one you're standing in front of is the Lord of the heaven's armies. And when he steps into the courtroom, here's the question he asks. Why are you hoarding everything that I've given you? Why are you stacking everything away in your closet that you don't even use? And when he talks about the cries of the field of the workers, he says, and why aren't you being fair to those who actually work for you? And he's fleshing it out by saying it this way. You're cheating them and you know you're cheating them and you're okay with it, but I want you to know I'm not. And I'm watching. And all the gifts and blessings that I've given you, I want you to do the same thing to other people. Treat them the same thing. Because at the end of the day, this is a heart issue, not a hoarding issue. And so he says this in the next verse, in verse five, you have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying, watch this, your every desire. What would you do if you were rich? Isn't there something that immediately comes to our mind? Whatever I want to do. Maybe we do have something in common with this passage. Your every desire you have for the day of slaughter. Now he picks up this terminology that we don't understand, but they got it. When he talks about you have for the day of slaughter, in this, in this, in this culture, they would take a cow or a heifer and they would fatten it, fatten it, fatten it, fatten it. And then for someone else, for a community, for a family, they would have a party. And they would use the fattened calf for that individual or for that family. You actually see this in Luke 15. When the father's son comes home, the father goes to get the fattened calf. And he says, we're throwing a party. My son has come home. What James is saying is this. You no longer use what God has given you for other people to celebrate them. You use what God has given you and them to fatten yourself, to celebrate yourself. Watch, watch. We're all guilty of this. All of us are guilty of this. We love things and use people. And God says, that's, that's not the plan. <laughs> that's not what I'm desiring. It's not what I want. I want you to love people and use things. Don't use people to love more things. Love people and just use things. Use things. James goes on and here's what he says in verse six. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. He just goes down and just to another level. He says, and some rich people, some rich people, they actually take advantage of poor people. Poor people who have nothing to begin with. Poor people who have no authority to fight back. Poor people who have no connections to fight back. And so the rich person just takes advantage of what little even the poor person has. And the Lord of heaven's army says, there is a day coming. There's a day coming where you will stand in front of me in a courtroom scene. And what you have put your security in will testify against you with great embarrassment. Not because you had stuff, nothing wrong with having stuff. It's that the stuff actually had you and you refused, you refused to treat others the way I treated you. Now, when we see it played out, it becomes obvious, doesn't it? 
So I, I thought about this illustration. Let's imagine that um, you are coming home from work and you get to go home for work at, at 11 or 11.30. So you call your wife and you're like, hey, listen, I want to pick up Billy and I want to take Billy and his buddy Johnny. I want to take them to the park. We got some time. Would you do me a favor, pack a lunch and then call Johnny's mom, get her to pack a lunch. I'll swing by, pick up Johnny and we're gonna go to the park. So here's what you do. You get to the park with your son, Billy, and then uh, Johnny as well. And it's lunchtime. So you pull out their lunch um, bags and it's so great. You open them up and Johnny opens up his bags and they're, they're, they're both moms have put a mask in there for them. And so as the dad, what do you do? So you're like, boys, it's time to eat. So uh, Billy, your son reaches in and he's got some goldfish. Everybody loves goldfish. You'll probably even take a few of those yourself. And what does Johnny, oh, Johnny's mom put in some goldfish too. So that's beautiful. And then of course, um, Billy's mom, your wife gives a little sandwich, which is awesome. Sandwiches are good to have. And then look here, Johnny's mom also packed a sandwich. Awesome. And then of course, uh, uh, your wife gave Billy an apple. He probably won't eat that, and you won't either. Johnny's mom get give an apple. You got to have a drink, so we've got the little fruit juice uh, for for Billy. And then Johnny's mom also gives a fruit juice, and that's awesome. And you have fun. You talk, you laugh, you share jokes, and then lunch is over. And when lunch is over, the bag Johnny's bag is, is empty. And then when lunch is over, your son, Billy, he thinks, oh man, I've got something else in my bag. This is beautiful. Billy reaches in and Billy actually pulls out four chocolate chip, dark chocolate, I might add, God's kind, dark chocolate chip cookies, four of them. Now Johnny's mom didn't, pack cookies. So as the dad of Billy, what, what do you do? That's right. You make fun of Johnny. <laughs> you ain't got no cookies. We got cookies. Hey, Johnny, there's a, a berry bush over behind the swing set. Go see if you can scrummage and get some berries. And because uh, your mom, apparently she's an idiot, but of course my wife's not. No, 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 no. What is the obvious word you would say to your son. Just type it, just type it out, just type it out. You know what you would say to your son when Johnny doesn't have cookies. What word would you use? That's right, it's obvious, isn't it? Hey son, just share. <laughs> be, be abnormal in this moment because normal is hoarding be abnormal and just share. Now, 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 let's be honest. As a parent, as a parent, if you never had to say anything and your son pulls out cookies and Johnny has no cookies and immediately your son says these words, oh, it's okay, I'll share. Listen, your heart as a dad, what does it do immediately? What does it do as a parent? That's right. You think to yourself, oh my heavens, free trade in America is over. He will never understand that what he gets, he has to keep. No, no, no. <laughs> Your heart is a parent. That's my son. That's my son. 
I'm so proud of you. And I bet you, you would even say it to him after you dropped Johnny off on the way home, wouldn't you? You'd go, hey, listen, listen. When you shared those cookies, I'm just telling you, I was so proud of you. Because there's something about sharing that taps us into why God has given us what he has given us. And God looks at us as rich people. And he says, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious why I've given you what I've given you that you would share? Right? So I want to share with you what we talk about here at the bridge and how you can be a consistent sharer of the things that God has given you. Here's the very first thing, and that's this. How should I share? Do it by a priority. Make it a priority in your life that I'm going to be a person who shares. I want to be a giving person. Every year, Valerie and I share with our kids how much we've given over the past year. How, how much did we give? Who did we give to? What ministries, what organizations did we support? What did that money do? And why did we give so much money? Because their eyes are like, what? Why did we give? Because we want it to be a priority in our life. If it's not a priority, then here's what happens. It's just, maybe they get the leftovers. Mm. Maybe not. Maybe God gets some back of his money. Maybe we get to help other people if there's enough left over. When you make it a priority, the first of the paycheck, the first of when I get paid. And then I think you could also add to it, how should I share? You share by a percentage. When you've made it a priority, then you can decide what percentage of that priority. Now we believe in tithing, which is a 10% of what you make. That God would say, everything I've given you, everything I've given you is actually from me. Here's all I ask. You take the first 10% and you give it back to me. It's showing that you trust me. It's showing that you love me. It's showing that you know where it comes from. Listen, listen. If my son gave immediately two cookies to Johnny, do you think I'd become more stingy as a parent? Or do I become more generous to him going, oh my God, if I can trust him with cookies, I mean, I can trust him with more cookies. I can trust him to a greater degree. God is the same way, that we would trust him by making, putting him first, trust him with the percentage of what we make. And then the third thing that I wrote down, how should we share? We share progressively. That means, that means the more you make, as you make, it's so tempting. Oh, now we have extra, so let's, change our uh, way of living to match what we're making. What if though, what if the more you receive is not to increase your lifestyle, but what if the more you receive is so that you can share with others who are in need so they don't have to go find berries somewhere? What if God is looking at us as rich people to say, I want you to put me first in your giving. I want you to choose what you're going to give. And then I want you, as I continue blessing you, I want you to keep blessing the world in return. And it's so challenging as you read about people who discover this, as you read about people who, who make this decision in their life, there's something about it. Um, Bob Buford wrote a book 
the name of the book is called Halftime. Bob Buford, very, very successful man, worked very hard, um, was a believer and was a CEO of many different companies. And this is one of the books that he wrote. And it's actually in the, in the middle here. It says, moving from success to significant. Here's a man, multi, multi-millionaire, yet realized that with all of his success, he didn't have significance. He reached out to a friend by the name of Mike, who actually was also very, very, very successful, CEO in his own right, In their relationship, Bob would share with Mike exactly how he was feeling. I have absolutely everything, but it's like something's not right. The gentleman told him, Mike said to him, said, Bob, it seems like your struggle is that you're putting too many things in your life box. That in your life box, you've actually put two things. One, money, and two, Jesus. He said, Bob, here's the catch. Your life box can only hold one thing. When you have something else, two, three, four, your heart then is divided, but your life box can only hold one. Will it be money or will it? be Jesus. The ironic part of this whole story is that Mike was actually an atheist who saw this in Bob's life. Here's what Bob wrote. To put Christ in the box is to break down the walls of the box and allow the power of grace of his life to invade every aspect of your own life. So what is it for you? Remember, You can only have one thing in your box. So I ask you, what's the one thing in your life box? You know what James would say? James would say, nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with the gifts God's given you. Just don't make it the one thing in your box. Make him the one thing in your box. And this is where it starts for us, doesn't it? If you have never made Jesus the one thing in your life, I want to give you the opportunity. Take everything else out of your life box. Something's missing to put him in your life box today is what I want to invite you to do. If that's what you want to do, I want to lead you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and say to him, Jesus, I want you to be priority in my life. You are the only things in my life box now. I surrender everything to you. Surrender my life to you. Ask that you come and invade my heart, my mind, and my life with your peace, your joy, and that I would find true satisfaction in you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Thank you that I can find life in and with you alone being number one. And I submit everything else to you. Use what you have given me to bless this world the way you have blessed me. 
In your name I pray, amen.